0: Let's pray. Lord our God, Yahweh our Creator, we are in worship before you. We are in awe. Who are we that we should be welcomed into your eternal presence? Even with the background of that which is hellish In sound behind us, Lord, our spirits are one with you. We cry in intercession for those who are deluded and deceived and need the Lord Jesus as a Savior, both here across the road from us and many that in the ongoing daily progress of our lives we meet we intercede for those who are blinded to your grace and goodness and lord when we look across the road we see impossibility almost of reaching into their hearts to bring the truth but lord our god you are sovereign and you are powerful and you are gracious and full of tender mercy and so we lift that which is across the road and we believe is opposed to you and your purposes we lift them to you that you would snatch brands or at least a brand from the burning and now Father if you would permit us we turn our attention to ourselves and our own personal needs our need to be encouraged, and to be built up in our most holy faith. Father, we are at your footstool. We are bowed before you, and we do have a request. Give us our daily bread. Grant us food today. Grant us further food this evening. Strengthen us in the Holy Spirit, in the inner man, for the week ahead by the teaching of your word and add a layer of understanding to that which we have already received. Build up on the foundations already received to a deeper knowledge of the Lord Jesus, your Son, and of your purposes, particularly relating to the near horizon of time before us. Please meet with us. And now, Lord, we've sung to you, We'll approach your word with faith, but we have to say to you, you're wonderful. We love you. We are so privileged to be saved and to be part of the eternal community. You will never leave us or forsake us. Lord, we are such a blessed people, and we praise your name. Yahweh, our God, Lord Jesus Christ. Spirit of the Living God, our Trinity God, we adore you in Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. You like to turn to the second book of Peter, chapter three. I just need to move this slightly out of my line of sight, so yeah, just take a wee bit that. Second book of Peter, chapter three. It is a very interesting chapter. That's fine, yep, that's good. I just get my notes like that, that'll be good. Um, I'm gonna read the whole chapter. We're gonna do half tonight and half next week, but we'll I'll read the whole chapter. Verse one of two Peter three. I'm reading from the New King James. Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of a reminder that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Saviour, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this they willfully forget, that by the word of God the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of water and in water, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But, beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, But it's long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, without spot and blameless, and consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, as also our beloved Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which some things are hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do also the rest of the Scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware, lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked. But grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. Well, as I said it's a very interesting passage. Um, we're presenting it under the title God the Perfect Timekeeper, and I'll bring that to in our conclusion as to what that really means but I want to start off just by making a statement that one of the remarkable things that Peter does in this passage is that he relinks the he links the creation by God the six-day creation in Genesis with God's timeline and the second coming of the Lord Jesus he links the verse that says uh, the whole passage of course is linked together But the verse that says, for this they willfully, let me just turn my Bible up there. Um, All things, verse 4, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. And then he says later, but you, beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as a day. It's an interesting thing that he does just to insert this chronological statement which they obviously had known about because he says, don't forget this. Anyway, let's start off where we should do in verse 1. Beloved, I now write to you the second epistle in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder. Two epistles, and he's speaking here This is his second one, and the first one, and both of them were there to stir the people of God to remember the things that they had previously been taught. What had they previously been taught, I wonder? Well, we can pick that up later when he says the the words of the prophets and the commandments of us, the apostles. We are assuming that at some point, these people, whoever they are, and we'll define who they are from the scripture in a minute, these people had been in the scriptures, in the um, Tanakh, the Old Testament books of the scripture, and that they had also had visitations, they had face-to-face encounters with apostolic teaching, with the teachers of the scriptures, the New Testament apostles. Who are they? Well, we find that out from 1 Peter, we turn to 1 Peter, chapter 1 and verse 1. Peter, the apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, basically in the area of Turkey. And he calls them the, um, uh, the, the, he has here the dispersion, but the word in Greek is the diaspora, Now, we know of the Diaspora today, don't we? The Jews that are scattered throughout the whole of the world, particularly in the Western world, we think of it, but in the whole of the world. At this point, the Diaspora hadn't spread as far. It was spreading. It spreads particularly after the sacking of Jerusalem and the temple and then after um, warfare in AD 138. The Jewish people are scattered farther. But at this point, a number have been scattered by persecution who believe in the Lord Jesus. They're Jewish in the same way as Jesus, Peter, James, John, Paul were Jewish, but they believe in the Lord Jesus as personal Savior. They have been redeemed and cleansed through his blood, and they know that the Old Testament prophets were directing the attention of the Israelite people to the Lord coming, Lord Jesus, and they know that his presence here on the earth was redemptive for Jew and for Gentile, and that Jew and Gentile are being brought together as one. But nevertheless, culturally, they are Jews. You find that with Paul, that often when he is on a uh, a round of the local area, he meets up and lives with Jewish people. But he's meeting with Jewish people who live in Christ, who know the Lord Jesus as the Messiah. And Peter, therefore, is writing to groups of people who have in this presumably circular letters that have known the Lord Jesus personally, but come from a Jewish background, right? That's interesting because when you start to see that there's a Jewish emphasis through what Peter is writing, then it just clarifies one of the ways that one or two of the ways in which he presents things to us in this passage. He says in 2 Peter 3, "...in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of of a reminder that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets." Our foundation of whatever we believe, and it hopefully is in us to be stirred up, our foundation of whatever we believe that is prophetic and about the future comes from the Scriptures. It doesn't come from any fellow like me, the, our ideas. It doesn't come from external things to the Scripture. It comes from the Word of God. And they, at this particular time, are being directed back in their experience, to remember the things that they had previously learned out of the Old Testament apostles. Sorry, prophets. Out of the Old Testament prophets. And they're looking not just to the future, they're looking to their current experience because this is just immediately after the time of the birth then the life and ministry, the death, burial, and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. It's Peter, one of the disciples who was contemporaneous with the Lord Jesus. If the Lord Jesus hadn't been crucified, if he had not given up his life, he would have still been alive at this point. You do realize if the Lord Jesus hadn't given up his life, he, wouldn't, he couldn't have died. Because the wages of sin is death. And did Jesus have any sin of his own? No. So he would have lived forever. He'd be here today. But he gave his life up. He breathed his life. Last, he gave his life. That's just an aside. But they had an, an a present experience of seeing prophecy fulfilled. They were living, and in their lifetime, the mass of great, it's about 300 plus old testament prophecies that had told that a messiah would come, that he would die, that he would be born in Bethlehem, that his uh, clothes at, at death would be um, lots would be cast for them, that there would be the resurrection, would be raised from the dead. One to eight of these prophecies put together, it has been calculated that the number of the chances of that happening in one man, the eight fundamental prophecies, they point to his, in his first advent. The chances of that happening and coming pa- to pass in the life of one man, the number is so big you, can't, you just can't get it in your head. So it has to be illustrated And it was illustrated, and it was an American that did this, so it's an American illustration. He said, if you take American silver dollars, which are about a bit bigger than a 10p, he said, if you take American silver dollars and cover the whole of the state of Texas about 18 inches deep, now that's a lot of silver dollars, right? The whole of the state of Texas. I think you can get three United Kingdoms into the... State of Texas, that's a lot, right? And they're 18 inches deep. The chances of Jesus, just by a fluke, fulfilling eight prophecies, is the chance of you going and picking up a dollar from there that had been specially marked. Of all these dollars, one marked one, and you go and pick it out first time. That's amazing, isn't it? And there are about there are over 300 or just over prophecies that were all fulfilled by Jesus at his first advent that's why you pay attention to the words of the holy prophets a great deal of what they had to say was understood then in terms of the fulfillment of the word of God and they'd begun to realize that you'll see that at the beginning of the book of Acts now this is what the scripture has to say we are seeing it fulfilled but of course they also pointed to his second coming that was a bit of a surprise. Disciples say to the Lord Jesus just prior to his, advent, his ascension, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he says, it's not for you to know the times and the seasons. And we'll leave that on one side for a moment. But the reason I use that is they did not fully appreciate that there would be some distance between the first and the second advent. Because very often, if you read Old Testament prophecies, the first and the second advent are intertwined in the same passage. But they had that. And then they've had something which is explaining to them what is in the Old Testament prophets, what it means, particularly now relating to the second coming of Jesus. That's because they've got apostles. And the apostles are going around the churches and they are preaching and they are expounding largely from the word of God that they had in their hands. What was that? It was the Old Testament. They didn't quite appreciate. Can you imagine this simple, always described as slightly rough-edged man, Peter, fisherman from Galilee, believing that what he said and wrote, whether he wrote it with his own hand or dictated it, we are not sure, but that it would become part of the eternal living word of God on the same level as all the scriptures of the Old Testament that they had so revered. Beyond understanding. I think it may beginning to dawn on him because he says later in the passage, and we'll look at it next week, that the apostle Paul wrote things and he calls them scripture. But here's an amazing thing. He says you've got to pay attention to what we have commanded, or what we have used our authority to expound to you concerning these matters. Knowing this, he says that um, you might be mindful of the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the holy Sa- of the Lord and Savior. Knowing this first, knowing this first. What does that mean? It means what it says. The first thing I want you to understand before I go into the next bit, because if there's a first, then there are subsequent bits, correct? So if you've got to know this first, and then he chooses something which is really quite unusual. He says, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lust. Scoffers, mockers is what it means. There's a dear brother in York called um, I better not name him. Dear brother in York. And he knew that came to me and spoke about this passage. Oh, he said, Brian, I I saw you at the buffet. I thought you were one of the scoffers mentioned in the passage. (laughs) It means those who mock. And the Church of Jesus Christ has always been. Subject to those who will scorn and mock and laugh at the truths that are presented. It's a way, if you're not able to deal with the argument um, intellectually and rationally, then laugh at the people. Undermine the argument. He's very specific, though. He's not talking about the ongoing through the centuries undermining of the faith by mockery. He says, look, listen, that scoffers will come in the last days. Beloved, we're in the latter days. I think most of you would be um, fully in agreement with that. Uh, You've had me speak on it several times, and I'm sure I'm not the only, well, I know I'm not the only one over over the centuries, over the years that this mission has been operating. The last days are going to be marked by scoffers. The dear folks over there largely wouldn't scoff. They probably would be quite respectful for what we're doing and see things on an equal religious basis. They may, they may scoff, but it's my, often my experience that those kind of folk, um, they disagree, and, but they tend just to ignore. Our problem in the last days of scoffers is we find them in the Church of Jesus Christ. The problem of scoffing, of mocking, roots back many decades, but particularly in the middle of the 19th century, the 1800s, in an attempt to make themselves intellectually acceptable to their academic peers. Christian teachers in universities, particularly in Um, Europe, and to a certain extent in the United Kingdom, and increasingly in the United Kingdom as that century went on, began to deny fundamental truths, to challenge things. These are people who are supposed to be Christians, and often, very often, they are Christian ministers. And they do the clever thing and get themselves in at the level of the teaching, of teaching at the seminaries and Bible colleges, and uh, departments in un- theological departments in universities. And they begin then to undermine the truth by basically asking questions and then making statements that, you know, the miracles of Jesus can all be explained away. Jesus did not really die and um, be raised from the dead. There was no virgin birth. There was no six day creation. There was. Uh, There's no solid authority that this is God's word. It's written by different men. Maybe there were two different Isaiahs that wrote the book of Isaiah. All this kind of stuff to undermine the truth. It's scoffing. It's not just scoffing at you for believing. It's scoffing at the word. Therefore, it's scoffing at God himself. And in the last days it is a tragedy, naming no names tonight, but it is a tragedy that throughout the traditional churches of our land and of of Europe and the world, there are so many standing tonight or were standing this morning usually for 10 minutes or less, but they were standing expounding something, not truly believing what the Bible says and undermining the truth of what the bible says concerning the deity of the lord jesus or his virgin birth or whatever or just ignoring these things and giving a you know sweet little ditty that could have come from readers digest scoffers there's another area of scoffing and again it's in the church of jesus christ And it comes from dear folks who believe that they themselves are the prophets and apostles. An apostle today is somebody that just goes from church to church with an itinerant kind of ministry. To that extent, you would have to call me an apostle with a small a, right? I'm not, um, I am attached to a fellowship, but I'm, I'm not pastoring a particular church, and I move around and. That's all it is. It's not like you're some big, as they say in Scotland, some big high Hedian that, you know, is senior to everybody else all around. There were such, there were such, immediately following the resurrection and ascension of the Lord Jesus, the apostles of the church, one stage become described as the pillars of the church, These apostolic men have authority and during their lifetime up until the 90-ish or just after AD with the death of the Apostle John, these were exceptional men who had been with Jesus and who had a particular authority given by him, right? So you don't get that walking around today and those who claim to do so and utter, and I know of a church where the pastor, so-called the pastor was, in fact, uh, writing a, a weekly or a fortnightly newsletter, and, and that's fine, over the years, I've right, done the same thing myself. But suddenly, his words in the newsletter, or, well, not so suddenly, over a period of time, had an equality with the Scriptures. People were saying, "Oh, well, he sa- it says in the newsletter of July you know, two thousand and nine da 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 da. Do you see that? And it's a subtle thing, it's a scoffing and a mocking. And these things indicate to us that we are in the last days. And he goes on to say, scoffers will come in the last days walking according to their own lusts. Now, we tend to think of the word lust in a rather narrow sense with a sexual implication, but they're walking according to their own desires for self. Desires for self. For personal inner self-satisfaction that they have accomplished something. By desires for power, for plaudits, For desires for money, pass the, you know, everybody, people in ministry need to be paid. But, you know, pass the basket around again, folks. There wasn't enough in it first time. I've heard of that. Have you ever heard of that? Yeah. Yep. A personal friend of mine encountered that with a visiting speaker. They were counting the money for him at the back of the church. Big event. Counting the money for him. And he came and he saw it and he said, um, and they're still singing in the, in the auditorium. And he said, the, the, the buckets or whatever it were will need to be sent back again, passed around again. They did, right? And so he then took the money that was on, that just happened in Northern Ireland, just so you know where it was. He took the money, but he wasn't from Northern Ireland. So he took the money and he put that which had already into his briefcase. And so they sent the baskets or whatever around again and brought the money into this little side room and tipped it out on the table. And before they counted it, he used his arm and he scooped it all into his briefcase. And he didn't go back into the closing worship. He went out into his vehicle and went back to the hotel. Now, that's shocking, and I hope hope it's exceptional, but I should think it's probably not. There are people who are propelled by a desire which is other than the pure desire to love and serve the Lord Jesus Christ. It's probably something that's irrelevant for me to say with, you, with respect to you as a group of people, but it's something that you should have away in the back of your head because you're going to encounter people from all other backgrounds. And when you see ministries that are hungry for money and have donate now buttons all over their website, beloved, beware. Beloved brother and sister, beware. It's often an indicator of lust, a lust for the material things of this world. And saying... Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. It's a bit like with Eve. Did God say, you know, just so a little doubt. So where is the promise of his coming then? You've all been gathering in meetings like this for 20 centuries. Year after year. You've had People I know in this church since the 1950s telling you that Jesus is coming back. Was it Pastor Evans that had the model railway? Was he the guy with the model railway? Must have been a wonderful, godly man. I love model railway, model railway man myself. He and a dear brother that you will know from Harrogate now, but he was local here called David Hoyle. They arranged, I think it was monthly meetings here at one point in the 50s, about the Lord's coming. And the Lord hasn't come yet. We're still waiting. But we're nearer now than when we first believed. But from the outside, scoffers and those who reject the truth and authority of God's word, because the truth and authority of God's word says it will happen. Don't worry about when, worry about what. God can operate net of time. He thinks net of time. Time is only relevant to him when he has got a program to fulfill. He has a timetable. He is in eternity. He lives in eternity. That's where we're going. Time is increasingly irrelevant to us. But as we age, we're getting nearer and nearer to eternity. And when you've sampled and touched eternity, you do not really want to have much to do with time where is the promise of his coming? Oh, well, he's coming all right. And then they said, For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue to be as they were from the beginning of creation. What you're seeing here is a particular, these are writing to Jewish people, and these are Jewish people who are having unbelieving, non-Messianic, non-Jesus-loving and serving Jews who know certain things of the Old Testament, talking about the Old Testament fathers of Judaism, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, so on, King David. They say since they fell asleep, everything has always been the same. And the object isn't just to denigrate belief in what they said and what we're expecting, but it's it's to undermine your expectation that God will fulfill in the future. Because if today is the same as yesterday and the past, then the future is just going to be the same as today. There's going to be no divine intervention in the future. Do you get their point? Hey, it's always been like this. It's like this in the past. It's like this now. Don't expect any difference. Beloved, don't listen to such voices. Listen to what the Scripture says. Psalm 96, he is coming. He is coming to judge the earth. And if you flip quickly into the Old Testament, behold, I come quickly or with haste. When he comes, it will be quick. And it won't be long. He has set down certain parameters, and we've discussed this before, to understand where we are on the divine calendar. And he moves on. For this they willfully forget that by the word of God the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of water and in water. They willfully forget. They deliberately forget. They wipe it out of their minds because the will of man is against the word of God. And they're going to have their own will, their own desires, and their own thoughts to be superior to the word of God. And the word of God just becomes a historical comic book. That's the view. Don't you go there, I'm sure you won't. And don't be discouraged by those who do go there because they've got nothing on you. I look round a room like this and the knowledge of God in a room like this is beyond description and volume from the knowledge of God in all those scoffers. So many do not even know him. A savior. Then there is tragically a large swathe who do know him but want to compromise and be acceptable in this world. Even trying to win people by diluting God's word, by diluting the scriptures, by diluting the gospel just to get the numbers in. You never do that. You see, he speaks in verse 6, verse 5, sorry, I should say. The heavens were of old, God created them, and the earth standing out of water and in the water by which the world that then existed perished being flooded with water. You will find that liberally inclined folk, and outright liberals themselves, will deny the creation, the 6 creation, they will, of course, deny a whole lot of New Testament things, the deity of Christ, the miracles of the Lord Jesus, the literal bodily resurrection of the Lord Jesus, of course, the literal return of the Lord Jesus. But they'll deny the sixty day creation and bang on the heels of that. What else will they deny? The global, the universal flood, the flood of Noah. They deliberately do not want to know these things. Why? Because that was Judgment. And if there was judgment in the past, then there could be judgment in the future. I spoke from Psalm 96 a second ago. He is coming. And it says immediately on the heels of that, he is coming. He is coming to judge the world. There is a judgment. All that those folks over there could Here in their hearts and minds, throughout Bradford, throughout Yorkshire, throughout England, Europe, and the world, there is a coming judgment. Our God, our God will not be mocked. But he is patient. The previous judgment, the flood. You deny the flood, then you can deny what's coming. If the flood never happened and we've made up the flood and put it in our Bible, then the next judgment is probably likely to be our fantasy. Or it's a poetic description of something which is really only a social movement or something like that. But the heavens and the earth are preserved by the same word. That's the word that created is the word that continues to preserve this world. If God by his word did not keep this world preserved, it would fall apart. There would be nothing. All things hold together through his word. And he is holding the world together. And he's holding the world together, but it is not only preserved, but it is reserved for judgment, reserved for fire, until the day of judgment and perdition or destruction of ungodly men. There's a heavy verse. There is a day of judgment coming for ungodly men. It's on a set day. I don't know and I cannot tell you when it is. But the scripture tells me that it's not a movable feast. A future day on the human calendar and the divine calendar but you and I are concerned with the human one, a future day on the human calendar. Acts chapter 17, and verse, where shall I start? Verse 29. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is something is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked or the Old King James says God winked at. He closed an eye. God overlooked. But now God commands all men everywhere to repent because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world and righteousness by the man who he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. He has appointed a day. This future day that he has appointed, that God has set in stone, if you like, comes nearer and nearer every single day. It's not as if as time goes on, it moves ahead with time. It's a bit, do you know what Russian roulette is? Are you too holy to know those kind of things? Russian roulette, you take a revolver, you put one bullet in. It's usually after large amounts of vodka. You put one, which you don't know what vodka is. It's a strange drink. Anyway, you put one bullet in, you spin the chamber, and then, you know, you take bets and you press the trigger. Right. And then the next man does it and he spins the chamber and pulls the bullet, pulls the trigger. You've got to keep spinning. <laughs> you've got to keep, keep spinning the chamber. Because what happens if you don't? Let's assume it's a fairly small, and you've got six. You've got one bullet, so you've got five empties and one loaded. And so the first time you go pop, right? Nothing happens. and pass it on to the next guy. And round the circle it goes. And it always has a blank click. <laughs> and when you hand it to number six, you know, He's a deadness, and Susie touches the trigger, isn't he? Why am I telling you that? Because that's what the day of judgment is like. Is in our calendar like. It's not like we spin, time. No, the judgment is set, and when this day is over, we're a day closer. When this year is over, we're a year closer. We are moving to an appointed day, to a set point. We are moving to chamber number six in which the bullet exists. He says, The heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, praise the Lord. And there is good news coming. This is not a message of complete glumness. He says it's preserved by the same word, And they are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. God is going to move through the whole of his creation, and we will see that next week, and cleanse the whole thing. But at the very root of it is dealing with the wickedness and perdition of ungodly men. What kind of men are ungodly men? We tend to think of the wicked, ah, they're the rapists and the murderers and the thieves and people in other religions and this. Ungodly just means without God. There's a day at which he is going to deal in judgment with the ungodly. Let me read to you from the book of Jude verse 14. Now Enoth the seventh from Adam prophesied about these men saying behold the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment on all to convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have committed in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Just to be without God brings folks to judgment. It's a harsh and tragic but true thing to say that when you look back back through human history, the vast majority of people have gone to the grave without a redeeming, saving, cleansing relationship with the true and living God throughout history past. The vast majority of folks who go to the grave today, likewise. Therefore, I expect... As time goes on, that will be the case. There have been exceptions where the word of God has sprung alive. I'm connected through my relationship with David Hoyle to work in the Philippines where people are regularly and routinely saved. On Friday, I was at a a, a gathering in North where three people were baptized. Hallelujah. I came here and enjoyed seeing people who had been born again being baptized. But relative to the population of Bradford or the population of North Yorkshire, it's small, very small. There is a judgment coming on the ungodly and the perdition of these ungodly folk. But beloved, then he takes a turn. Beloved, do not forget this one thing that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise as some count slackness but is long suffering toward us not willing that any should perish but that all should come to repentance. This delay, where is his coming, is deliberate from God and for a purpose. God from Babel onwards has used division to create the delay he's kept the world at odds against one another so that they would not come to a unity whereby they would reach a place that judgment would have to be enacted sin and wickedness coming to a place of fulfillment like a boil that's about to burst or it says in genesis the sin of the amorites is not yet full yet when the sin becomes full judgment will fall and God in his mercy never has let the world get to that place because he's kept the world divided and instead of being cooperative in their schemes and enterprises they have become competitive and some of the wickednesses that we see today both socially and uh, technologically cloning you name it would have taken place centuries, if not millennia ago, and judgment would have fallen. But God in his mercy has kept the world in this state. Why? That so that he might call out of the Gentiles a people for himself, that they might become one with him, wrapped in Christ, embraced, as we sang, in the bosom of the Father where the Son is, with love, It says here, he does not, but with his long-suffering, he is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He wants all. 7.7 billion of us, is it? That's what he wants. But he's prepared to give the human race the opportunity to have what they want. And they choose to be ungodly. And they are choosing to be ungodly. What are you choosing? It's not about being fearfully wicked and shoplifting and you name it. I say shoplifting because my wife, was before she got saved, was a highly competent shoplifter. No, it's being without God. Is he in your life? Because if he's not in your life, you are on the route to judgment. Well, change routes quick. Because he does not desire you to go that way. He desires you to come his way, to him, to all the love that he has for you. It does say he's not willing in my Bible. It would be better to say he is not desirous. It is not his purpose, that. Because if God willed that no one would perish, nobody would perish. And the doctrine of what we call universalism would be true. Everybody gets saved in the end. The grace of God is infinite. Everybody gets saved. Yes, the grace of God is infinite, but the time to receive and accept that grace is not. It is limited. He has set a day. We are marching towards it. Every day that we live slips away. His grace is infinite and limitless. The time to access it is not. Today is the day of salvation. Today receive him as Savior. But he has said something rather odd before that, Has Peter, beloved, do not forget this one thing that with the Lord one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. He is, in fact, drawing down from Psalm 90, where Peter would read, Peter, Peter being a good Jewish boy, would know the Psalms probably by heart, a day is a thousand years. And what we have here is something really quite interesting from the book of Genesis. We really have to go back to um, just think about this: the creation how many days did it, was God working and laboring to create the world? Six days. We all know he could have done it in six nanoseconds if he had wanted to, right? He did not do it in six millennia or six million years or 60 million years. He did it in six days, very, very specifically for a godly prophetic reason. Because he could have done it faster, and he could have done it slower. So why did he choose six days? And then there was a seventh day. What was that? The Shabbat, the Sabbath. We learn from the book of Hebrews that the millennial kingdom, which is 1,000 years long, according to six references to it in the book of Revelation, chapter 20, there are many, many Old Testament references to the kingdom of God on earth and the millennium and the reign of the Messiah, but it's from the New Testament and the Book of Revelation that we under know it's we we understand its length, a thousand years. So we have a thousand year rest, a Shabbat, where God gets the benefit and what He wanted out of the world's creation for himself because he rested on the seventh day. Did he rest because he was tired? Was God exhausted with six days of speaking out his word? Of course not. Makes no sense. He rested to enjoy. He rested to enjoy Adam and Eve, but of course you know what happened. He rested to enjoy the whole of the beauty and the bounty of what he had made. Six days, one day of rest. It was the understanding of the early church fathers to whom we have, and Peter has referred, that the creation image of six plus one was to illustrate God's time plan for redemption. Creation was six days plus one day for rest. The time and plan of redemption would be times 1,000. A day is as a 1,000 years. There would be 6,000 years of labor, and then there would be the 1,000 year of millennial rest under King Jesus in the Messianic kingdom. And so if we measure off, and I do this very generally for a meeting like this rather with, great mathematical specifics but if we start off roughly we go from Adam to Abraham it's about 2,000 years and from Abraham to Jesus guess what 2,000 years and from the Lord Jesus till now how many years is it roughly from his ministry from his birth right through to his death burial and resurrection what kind of figure would we generally be talking about 2,000 years. Is there any great mathematician here, any PhD in maths who can give me three times 2,000? 6,000. So if God has given us a timeline of 6,000 days of labor and then a 1,000-year millennial reign and we're up at the end of the last 2,000, we're up at the end of the 6,000, then his coming is most surely very soon indeed. Is that not exciting? And Peter inserts that there, and he has used his illustration drawn down because he's already been speaking about the creation. And he says, but the heavens and the earth and so on, but beloved, but you've heard all of this stuff, but beloved, do not forget this one thing. If I was saying to you, tonight, and I am, do not forget this one thing. I'm saying it's the most important thing I've said. He's saying it's the most important thing I'm writing. Don't forget this thing. And then he says, a thousand years, days, a thousand years, a thousand years, this is a day. It's a much bigger picture, and it's a much more valuable yardstick or measuring length than just the bit that I've told you but it is sufficient to illustrate to us that we are at the close of the age. Is it tomorrow? I don't know. Is it next week, next month, next year? I don't know. I will never know. You will never know. Because there's an element of our God that is inscrutable. He keeps certain things very close to his chest, including you and me, but he does. There are things he keeps as secrets to himself because he is God and we are not and never will be. But he has things that he wants us to know, truths about himself that will encourage us on our journey home. God has laid out a perfect plan. He has put a perfect timescale, timeline, timetable along it. He is living by in the the eternal realm by watching us go through the 6,000 years in anticipation and great excitement of the 7,000 years when he will get his rest and you will share it. He has kept to his plan. He keeps to his order of time and he has kept mankind on track and in his mercy He has stretched these things out for a reason, that he might call out of the Gentiles a people for himself. After the rejection of the Messiah by Israel, they are laid on one side for a period of time. It's that 2,000 year era, whatever years, whatever kind of years we're talking about, but it's that 2,000 year block. When he is drawing out of the Gentiles the people to himself until the last one to be saved, the last one who will, in their, of their own will, bow the knee to Jesus, does so. And the gospel message, as we know it, is finally closed. That gospel message is not closed tonight. That gospel door is wide open tonight. If you have never, ever asked him to be your savior, ask the Lord Jesus tonight do not delay I don't know if the big final events of the second coming will take place tomorrow but I don't know that they won't we need to be ready you do not know at which what hour your Lord will come no man knows but he will come at such an hour as you think not the scripture says So, my beloved friends, brothers and sisters, be ready. If you know him as your Savior, then get to know him more deeply. Continue in holiness and service. Give more of yourself to him. And if you've never known him, then may it be tonight that you do. Amen.